think so. All right, if you guys have your Bibles, you can go ahead and get those and open up to the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be in the very first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Last week, we kicked off a, a, a new summer series called I Heart My Community. You guys have seen the t-shirts. I hope you uh, get one if you don't already have one. But the idea behind the series is to show us that all people matter to God. And if all people matter to God, then as followers of Jesus who have been uh, redeemed, who have been rescued, who have been transformed by the gospel uh, through Jesus Christ, then all people need to matter to us as well. It doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter what they've done no matter their socioeconomic status, no matter their ethnicity, uh, no matter what they've done in their past or present, no matter if they're doubters, seekers, or skeptics, uh, whoever they are. And, you know, we want people to, to walk through the doors of our church and to feel welcomed, to feel the love, and uh, with the, the hope that they will find hope and wholeness in Jesus Christ. Amen? John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that he sent his only son, in that one verse, we really see the heart of God and His desire for all people that He created. See, because of our sinful nature, because of our rebellious spirit, the Bible says that we do not seek after God. We, we don't seek after God, but God sought after us. God took the initiative. He seeks after us. He pursues us. He moved towards us. And we can only love other people because God loved us first. First John 4.19 says, we love because God first loved us. Romans 5.8 says that, but God showed his love for us and that while we were still sinners, while we were still rebellious, while we were still enemies of God, God uh, sent Jesus Christ, died for us. And that's the good news of the gospel. That's the message. That's the hope that we have, that through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, we can be rescued from our sins and be redeemed and find hope and wholeness through him. And that's the heart of God, and that's the message that God has given us, the church, to go out and to share with our neighbors, our family, our co-workers, and our community. But the question is how? I mean, it could be a daunting task, right? We can sit here and think, man, where, where do we start? What do I say? Where do we begin? How do I engage my community? What, what do I say? And to answer those questions, we're going to spend the next couple of weeks in the same, same passage, the same text, and it's going to be in Matthew chapter 5, uh, we're going to look at a small portion of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Now, raise your hand this morning if you are familiar with Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. If you grew up in church, you may be familiar with it, so keep those hands up. I want to, I want to see you, all right? How many of you guys are uh, not really familiar with Sermon on the Mount? Anybody here? Anyone not familiar with Sermon on the Mount? Well, the Sermon on the Mount has often been called the ethics of Jesus or the ex ethics of Christianity. There's no other religious discourse in the history of humanity that has attracted uh, the attention that the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Sermon on the Mount has. 
As a matter of fact, there are tons of philosophers and tons of activists from, from many non-Christian perspectives who, who do not necessarily believe that Jesus is the Holy Son of God, but they admire Jesus because of his ethics. They read the Sermon on the Mount and they're like, man, this guy was off the chain. <laughs> this guy has some serious ethics. This is, this is awesome. I mean, there are people who refuse to worship Jesus as Savior, but they admire Jesus because of his teaching, because of his ethics. Sermon on the Mount is addressed specifically to Jesus' disciples and his followers. I want you to look with me real quick because this can be a little tricky if we don't pay attention here. But in Matthew, look at, look at the, the, the Matthew chapter 4, the last few verses there. It says, uh, your, your, your caption on your, your Bible probably says, Jesus ministers to the great crowds. But basically what Jesus was doing is he was going out throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread and people started coming to Jesus. They wanted to, they wanted to see Jesus. They wanted to be healed. They wanted to be, uh, uh, people were being oppressed by demons. They wanted to be free of that. And it says a great crowd followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And then verse, chapter 5, verse 1 starts out with this. It says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples, his followers, came to him. And so the way I see this in my mind is, is the crowds are kind of out there. Jesus walks up to the, to the top of the mountain there, and he sits down, and his disciples, his followers, follow him. Now, I don't know how many that would have been. I think it's more than just 12 disciples. Uh, Jesus had just called his 12 disciples, but it may have been more. I don't know. Uh, that, that, that were in this, in this teaching time, okay? But I also want you to notice this. Verse 2, it says, Then he opened his mouth, and he taught them. I find it fascinating that Matthew adds that little, that little nugget there, that Jesus sat down and he opened his mouth. Why, did, why does Matthew say that? I, I don't know. I, I believe it's because Jesus was constantly teaching his followers whether he was verbally teaching or if he was teach, or where he was teaching by his actions, by the way he lived. And I find that remarkable, because in those days, Jesus was the rabbi, and his disciples would have followed him everywhere. Matter of fact, there's an old saying uh, that says, uh, may you follow in the dust of your rabbi. And what that means is, is may you walk so closely behind your rabbi that the dust that kicks up on his feet, may you be covered in that dust. And so Jesus taught not just with his mouth, uh, but he also taught, by his action. Now it's important for us to know that the Sermon on the Mount is not an instructional manual for Christians on how to earn God's favor or to earn salvation. Right, we can't earn salvation. It's only through the work and the person of Jesus Christ that we earn, uh, that we get salvation. We can't earn it. Right? The Sermon on the Mount describes how Christians have placed their faith and trust in Jesus and live because the Holy Spirit is working in their lives, shaping them and molding them to become the person he wants them to be. And it shows us how we are to live and pursue God in this loving relationship. And so let's go ahead and read that. Uh, we're going to start in verses 13 through 16. We're going to skip the Beatitudes. All right, we're going to jump over those, and we're going to start in verses 13 through 16. So you guys ready? All right. It says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste... How shall, it, how shall its saltiness be restored? So long are good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. 
and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now again, we didn't read the Beatitudes, but just just a real quick summary. The very first 12 verses of the sermon define what it means to be a Christian. You'll notice it says, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who... Basically, the, the, the Beatitudes describe what it means to be a Christian. They describe the characteristics of a Christian and and what our relationship to God looks like. A Christian is someone who has gotten a radically new relationship with God through belief in the gospel. But then in verse 13, Jesus shifts the focus. It changes from our relationship with God to our relationship with the world. And what Jesus is saying is, is in other words, if you have the relationship with God that verses 1 through 12 gives, that will mean that you will have this type of relationship with the world. So Jesus is saying that this is how my disciples will relate to the world. Jesus would say it later in the Gospels uh, by the greatest commandment. What's the greatest commandment? Uh, Okay. Uh, This is what I I heard. (laughs) What's the greatest commandment? Just sum it up right here. Love God. And then love Love your neighbor. So, so essentially, this is really the first time that Jesus says this, right? I mean, he goes later and says the greatest commandment, love God, love people. But here, what he's saying, the Beatitudes, man, it sounds like this is what a Christian looks like in our relationship to God. Love God. And then verse 13 shifts. If you love God, this is what your relationship with the world is going to look like. Love God, love others, all right? So that's, that's where we see that. And to summarize what you have here is to say that if you're living at all a consistent Christian life, then in this world, you will be salt and you will be light. So we're not to spend our time here thinking about how to escape the world, but rather Jesus is telling us to engage the world, to enter into it. Now what's interesting is that Jesus uses two metaphors here. He says, as followers of Jesus, you are salt and you are light. Now what does that mean? I don't know if we understand or not how valuable salt was in the ancient Middle Eastern culture. It was a very valuable commodity. Did you know that the Roman soldiers received their wages in salt? Like how, would you love, how, how would you like it if you get your paycheck in the mail and it's just, a, it's just an envelope full of salt? You know what I'm saying? You'd be like, what is going on here, right? But that's what happened. The Roman soldiers, they would receive their wages in salt. The Old Testament law, I didn't know this, but the Old Testament law in Leviticus 2.13 required that all offerings to God be presented by Israelites containing salt. It acted as a purifier. Uh, I'm doing a wedding in August uh, for, for a, a, a guy who was in my, my youth group back in my home church. And whenever somebody like that asks you to do your wedding, man, you really feel old. You start to begin to feel old. Like, but, but he's, and they want to do a salt covenant. And so I began to research that, and I found, I was like, man, that's interesting. And so that's what that means. In ancient times, salt was used more as a preservative than it was a seasoning. And the reason salt was used is because bacteria and other potentially harmful organisms can grow on meat, and, 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 and those organisms, those, those, those deadly things, can't survive in a highly salted environment. Any living cell in such an environment will become dehydrated and die and become temporarily inactivated when salt is applied. So the disciples in the first century hearing this, they would have understood exactly what Jesus meant, especially those who were fishermen. 
Because they fished and they had, and they had fish, and so they would have known, yeah, we, we pack our fish with salt. They didn't have fridges, they didn't have, fridges, they didn't have freezers. They, they couldn't, they couldn't uh, put, put their meat in those things. And so what he's saying is, is the, you preserve uh, the meat, you slow down the decaying process. And so because of sin, because of our, our rebellious spirit, human society tends to kind of go in, in a bad direction, right? We can tend to go get corrupted. And Jesus' point is that followers of Jesus who have been made whole, made new by the gospel of Jesus Christ, function as preserving agents to prevent moral decay. We stop moral decay in our sin-infected world, is what Jesus is saying. Now, there's a lot of people out there who have different worldviews, and there's a lot of people out there who think to themselves, well, and a lot of Christians who think this, that, man, you know, the, the world is going to be destroyed anyways, uh, we're all sinners, you know, what's the point, uh, you know, this and that, and so they think, yeah, but, but, but what we don't understand is that when sin entered the world, it didn't just affect us, sin affected everything. And so God has, is calling us to, to redeem and to restore, and so, so, you know, it's not like, okay, well, the earth is going to hell anyways, so let's just not worry about it. But no, he calls us to be good stewards. He calls us to steward what he has given us, and so we take care of things. And so people have value, and so they have value to God, they have value to us. And it's intriguing, the image that Jesus gives here. And so what he's saying is this, he says, if you see somebody's life falling apart, if you see their life, man, it's just an absolute mess. They've got problems on the inside, they've got problems on the outside, they're just a mess. As a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, how do you respond? Do you run the opposite direction because you don't want to get involved? It might take a lot of your time. It might be exhausting. What do you do? And Jesus says that as Christians, when you see someone's life falling apart, you enter in. You engage. You get in the mix. You're salt. And you're there to inhibit the decaying process. See, the same is true as if you see a society, a neighborhood, a community with social problems, falling apart, in decay. Christians don't run the opposite direction. We don't turn a blind eye, but rather we engage. We are salt because salt affects its environment. See, Christians as salt are to inhibit sin's power and that destroys lives. We engage and we respond and we become for other people in our community what Christ has been for us. It's Colossians 1.17. Salt means to be involved. In essence, we want to be a Salty congregation. We want to be a salty congregation. A salty, salty congregation is when people in your community say things like this. I don't necessarily believe what you believe. I, I don't necessarily believe in, in God or Jesus or what he's... But something's different about you. So, something's different about the way you live. Something's different about the way you care. I don't know what it is. But something's different. And we don't know what we do without you. That's, that's a salty congregation right there. Rick Russell would say it this way. He says, if your church was to cease, was cease to exist, if your church was just to disappear in your community, would anybody notice? Would anybody notice? The question is, are we influencing our community? So what Jesus is saying is, is that when you're living a consistent Christian life, then you will be salt and you will be light. When the Holy Spirit grabs a hold of your heart and begins to shape and mold you more and more into the image of Christ, as you begin to surrender daily your life to Jesus and pursue righteousness and you begin to enter into the mess of your community and show the love of Christ, you will cause other people to be spiritually thirsty. 
you will begin to have influence. You will be salt, which will then enable you to become light. You are salt of the earth, and the becoming salt of the earth naturally leads to being the light of the world. Now, I want to briefly just look at what Jesus says about light, because we're going to talk about that more next week. But I, I, I found this interesting. He says, You're light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. I don't know if you noticed that or not, but Jesus just mixed metaphors. He says, he says You are the light of the world. And then he goes to, You're a city on a hill. And then he goes, jumps back to light. Now, if Jesus would have had English, he would have known you can't mix metaphors like that. But Jesus didn't. He spoke Aramaic, and so those rules don't apply to Jesus. But Jesus does that. Why does he do that? Well, in ancient times, man, if you built your city on a hill, you would have been visible to everybody. You would have been exposed. Everybody would have seen your flaws. You would have been visible. Everybody would have seen you. And so nobody wanted to build a city on a hill. And what Jesus is telling his followers is that you are to live countercultural. You are to be different. You are to be visibly different from everyone else. This is a starting point. You want to know where to start this daunting task that God has given us to share the good news of the gospel? This is where we start. We live differently. We're countercultural because people are going to be looking. This is the foundation. If we don't get this, it doesn't matter what we say because no one's going to listen. The way that we preserve, the way that we influence others is by living in such a way that people notice that something's different. I think that's important for us to understand that. Because over the last 50 or 60 years, I don't know if you've noticed or not, and I wasn't alive 50 or 60 years ago, but I've seen it just in in a little bit of time I've been alive. There's been a huge culture shift, has there not? A massive culture shift. I mean, 50, 60 years ago, man, uh, you, you would have asked the majority of people, they would have said they, they would have claimed to have been Christian, right? And they said, yeah, I'm a Christian. And 50 or 60 years ago, the church played a massive role in the culture and shaping the direction of the culture, where it was going. Most everyone would have said, yes, there is moral truth, right? Most everyone would have said, yes, that is wrong. This is, this is right, this is wrong. They would have easily pointed out that, yes, this is sin and that is sin. And most everyone would have agreed on that 50 or 60 years ago, but that's not the case anymore. Moral truth has been thrown out the window. And most people believe that what's right for them may not be right for you, but it doesn't matter. And the lines have been blurred. And the church, over the years, has lost its place in culture. We're no longer the influence. We're no longer the home team. I don't know if you guys know that or not. Right? We're the away team now. We've lost our influence. Because the church doesn't look any different than the culture. That's why. This is why Jesus says, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall it be salty again? It's lost its value. It's no longer good for anything. It's going to be thrown out and trampled on by men. And the most obvious reasons we've lost our saltiness is because our lives don't match our beliefs. See, when salt is contaminated, it becomes corrosive and poisonous, which means we do more harm in our community than we do good. We do more damage. When we go out and we, and we, and we, and we, we announce this is what we believe, we, stay, take, a stand, we take a firm stand on this or that, and, and people hear that, but our, our lives don't match up with that, then what good is it, right? That's what Jesus is saying. 
And if we're honest with ourselves, man, by and large, Christians in America are known more for what they believe, what we're against, rather than how we live. And the question is, is whether or not we, we know our own message. I mean, sure, I think we know pieces of it. I think we know that Jesus died for us, that Jesus went to the cross, that he was buried in a tomb, and that he rose from the dead, that we've been forgiven. But I wonder if on a whole do we really understand and grasp the gospel message and what it means. Because it see, there seems to be an unhealthy passion for information and knowledge and little to no passion for life change or transformation. Would you agree? There's no, there's no passion for, for, for life change or transformation and leaving sin and putting sin to death in our lives. And in other words, we have nothing to point to. Like, we can't go to people and say, hey, look, look, when your marriage looks like this, things will go better for you. We can't say that. We can't say, hey, look, whenever, you're, whenever the husband is loving the wife as Christ loved the church, whenever the wife is, is submitting to the, to, the, to the man and respecting him, this is the way marriage works. We can't point to that, can we? Because Christian marriages look no different than, than the marriages in our culture. We can't point to, to, to men and women who are struggling with lust and say, hey, man, well, don't be looking at pornography on the computer or don't be looking at this or that because it is damaging. You are devaluing and dehumanizing men and women when you do that. We, we can't go to them and say this is the damaging effects of that because there are just as many men in the church who look at pornography as there is in the culture. I, I, I learned years ago that, um, that whenever there's a Christian conference out of town and pastors go out of town, Hotels have said that, that, that the pastors standing in, in those hotels, that the, uh, the, the, the dirty channels, whatever you call them, uh, the movies, they're, they're ordered more frequently. More frequently. So you see what I'm saying? We have nothing to point to. We can't say, hey, look, do it, do it this way because it's better. God's way is better. Well, we can't do that. We've lost our influence in the culture. Salt has lost its saltiness. And so what's left except for us to be trampled on by man? Now, I say all that to say that I don't believe all hope is lost. Do you? Do you believe all hope is lost? I mean, we're here. We're here for a purpose. God has put us here. So how do we begin to swim upstream? How do we begin to, to live counterculture? How do we to, to begin to remain salty and have influence in our community? I, I think there's a couple of things, and I want to share them with you real quick. And I mean, this is not an exhaustive list by, list by any means. But I think the first thing is getting back to the basics. And, and what I mean by basics is I mean gospel. It's getting back to the gospel. Churches tend to place an enormous amount of emphasis on the amount of information that you know versus the amount of emphasis placed on actually living out and doing what you know. We, we want to pump people full of information. We, people want, man, just give me more Bible studies. Give me, I want to go deeper into the truths of the Bible. Give me more of this. Give me more of that. And there's no accountability in place to actually help people live out those things. James, the half-brother of Jesus, writes about this. He says, man, you say you believe in Jesus, but your life doesn't show it. Even the demons believe. Now, I'm not saying that more Bible studies are bad and going deeper isn't good. We offer Bible studies here at Church of Christian Church, and we want you guys to be involved in Bible studies, okay? Those things are good, and they're, and they're healthy. But if all we're doing is filling our heads with knowledge and not experiencing life transformation, then what good is it? 
Let's focus on the gospel. The gospel is not simply the ABCs of Christianity. It's more than just the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The gospel is Jesus. The gospel is the A to Z to Christianity. In other words, the gospel is, 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 is deep. It's deep. It is a well that is so deep that we cannot find the bottom of it. Do you understand that? You will never graduate from the gospel. You just won't do it. You'll never graduate from it. The gospel is not just simply the power to save, but it is the power of God to change us once we are saved. Do we understand that? Do we believe that? How does the gospel change me? I can list a bazillion ways. I'm going to list a few for you here. How does the gospel change me? It changes me because the gospel tells me that I am approved and accepted through Jesus Christ, which means I no longer have to live to please other people. I don't have to worry about being codependent on other people. I don't have to worry about being affirmed or accepted by other people. Do you realize how much that sets you free? How many times do you worry about what other people think of you? How many times do you worry about trying to please other people? And the gospel sets us free from that because we've been affirmed and accepted by Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. If we can just learn that a little bit, man, that's life-changing. The gospel validates us. I'm approved. It changes me because the gospel tells me that God is sovereign and he's in complete control. Which means I don't have to worry about trying to manipulate other people to do what I want to do. You guys ever use manipulation on people? Probably every day, don't we? But the gospel sets us free from that. Because we're not in control. We don't have to be in control of everything in our life. Because God is in control and we find rest in the Father through the gospel. The gospel allows me to forgive others because I have been forgiven so much. We don't have to hold grudges on people. We don't have to, you know, want vindication for what what somebody has done for us because the gospel has freed us up, man. We were enemies of God when he sent Jesus. So the gospel frees us up from that. The gospel tells me that my identity is in Christ, which means I don't have to go and look for replacement identities. My identity is not in my work. My identity is not in my kids. My identity is not in the things that I do. But my identity is in Christ. Do you see what I'm saying here? Does that make sense? And see, if we can just grasp those things, I think we'll begin to see that that's life-changing and transforming. Would you agree? The gospel is, is, is where we need to start. That's just to name a few. But that's why we devote ourselves to the greatness of Jesus. We need to be students of the gospel. Second, we need transparency and genuine community. Now hang with me here, okay? Because one of the reasons we've lost our saltiness is we're failing to acknowledge the inconsistencies in our life. Remember, Jesus said you are a city on a hill, which means that you are exposed. You are visible. Everybody's going to see you. People are watching. And when you take a stand for truth, and when you begin to live countercultural, people will take notice, will they not? So that doesn't mean that we put up a wall, that we put on a mask and we pretend to have everything together. We, tend to, we pretend to have this, this perfect life that we, put, that we portray on social media, that everything's hunky-dory. It means that we don't give off the perception that we are holier than thou, that we bash people over the head with the Bible and say, look, man, this is the way I live. That's not what that means, that we're morally superior than other people because that's going to turn people away. How many times have you ever heard somebody come to you and say, you know what, 
uh, Christians aren't perfect. You guys aren't perfect. I don't know why you're throwing this stuff in my face. You're not perfect. You guys ever heard people say that to you? And what's, typically our response is always what? Well, we're not perfect. We're just saved. You guys ever said that before? Can I just say this? Can we stop saying that? Can we? That's a cop. Let's just stop saying that. Let's point them to the Bible. Let's point them to what the Bible says about us. Okay? The Bible says that, that we're not perfect, that we're all sinners, that we all fall short, and that we need God every single day. Amen? Now, I'm not saying that we just tell people, hey, you can't be perfect, so live life however you want, and God will forgive you. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying about transparency is this, is that we're honest with people, and we're admitting to them what the Bible says about us. It means that as followers, we passionately pursue righteousness. We pursue holiness. Listen, I'm telling you, man, we pursue those things. We pursue what Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. We pursue holiness. We pursue obedience to the Word of God out of a loving relationship with God. We don't pursue those things to earn God's favor. We're accepted through Jesus Christ, and out of that, then we begin to pursue holiness. We pursue righteousness. We pursue obedience because He loved us first. And as we pursue those things, yes, we will fall short every single day. That's why Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount, was to show us that you need Jesus because Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly. And so when you begin to live these things out, you're, you're, I'm falling short. It's to drive us closer to Jesus. You need Jesus. And what the gospel allows us to do then is that when we do fall short, see, the gospel says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so it allows me to get back up when I do fall short, and to continue pursuing. And I don't have to wallow in my guilt and shame. You see the difference there? See, when we tell people, man, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm Christian, which means I'm not perfect, but I'm saved. Where, where's the cop at? Well, we need to say, you know what, yeah, I, I am a sinner. And the Bible is honest about that. The Bible tells us that we're all sinners. We all fall short. That's why we need God every single day. That's why we need Jesus and so we point people back to Jesus, and we're telling them, hey, look, I'm pursuing these things, and I fall short every single day. This is why I need Jesus. This is why I need... Does that make sense? You guys tracking with me on that? Okay. Uh, I'm going to use... Do you guys know who Lisa Turkhurst is? You guys can... Uh, she's a, a, a female... She's a Christian writer. Right? Uh, Charlotte, you probably know. you know who Lisa Turkhurst is? Okay. And, and this is what she says. She says... She calls it imperfect progress. And what she says is each day I wake up, I draw a line in the sand, and each day I inch forward. And yes, there are many setbacks. But with the help of the Holy Spirit, I keep pursuing. I keep moving. I keep getting up. I keep pursuing. That's transparency. But we can't do it alone. And so we need to live in genuine community. Living with people that will speak into our lives and lovingly confront us when needed. We need brothers and sisters uh, like ourselves that will help us grow in our walk with Jesus. Listen, the reality is we all have blind spots. We all have areas in our life that we just we don't see. There's sin that we're just blind to. And we need people in our life that is going to lovingly confront us, not judgmentally, not with harshness, but lovingly confront us and say, hey, look, man, I noticed you're walking in this way. Let, let, me, let, me, let me help you. Let, let's, let's walk together in this. Let's pursue Holiness. Let's pursue righteousness. We need accountability. 
This is why we stress for everyone here at Chester Christian to be a part of a small group. And not just to attend a small group, man, but to be involved in genuine community. Where you're honest with each other. Where we're sharing. And we're walking through life together where iron sharpens iron. Billy Hires, who was here uh, about a month ago, if you guys remember, he spoke on Sunday morning. But uh, he talks about each person having a Paul and a Timothy. The Apostle Paul and Timothy was his mentor. And the idea behind that is, is we all have somebody like a Paul who is pouring into us, who is discipling us, who we, are, who we are sitting under. But then we also have a Timothy, somebody who we are pouring into, somebody that we are discipling. And so that's where small groups come into play. You have somebody in there, man, that you are learning from, that you are gaining knowledge from, that you are being discipled by, but then you also have somebody that you are discipling, that you are pouring into. It means that we need to be in the Word of God regularly. I cannot stress that enough. I know I've mentioned that the uh, last several weeks, uh, multiple occasions, but listen, man, if you are not in the Word regularly, I would just encourage you to get on a plan, to get you version on your phone, uh, look out, search for people in the church to become friends with, and be accountable to each other, man. Do plans together. Talk about them. Discuss them. I'm on there, man. Search for me. I'll be your friend. All right? But, but do that. They got, they got plans for everybody. You don't have to read the Bible in a year. Just, just start with a, a small plan where you're reading a verse or two a day. Can we start there? Be in the Word regularly. Pray regularly. So this is just a couple of ways that we can begin to have influence in our culture again. And so I would encourage you to ask some questions as we close today. With the help of the Holy Spirit, ask, ask some questions. Where do I need to be obedient? Where do I need to be obedient? Where's the Lord leading me right now? Where do I need to step out? Where, where do I need to stop the moral decay in my life? Where do I need to stop the moral decay in my neighborhood? Where do I need to stop the moral decay in my community? Ask those questions. Allow the Holy Spirit to work, man, and move. I'm going to tell you, man, when, when I write sermons, it, it's, it's a hard process. I don't just write them and then just come up here and, 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 and listen. I, I, I had a conversation with Robin Tuesday or Wednesday night. I said, man, this sermon is, is tough this week because it convicted me. It did. It did. And I'm asking these same questions because we, we've got to have influence, man. If we don't have any influence, then we can't let our light shine, which is going to be next week. Okay? You guys good? All right. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for uh, Jesus and his teaching. And we thank you for um, just your grace and mercy in our life. Father, I pray this morning that these would not just be words that we hear and then we just kind of go about our day and not think about them. But Father, I pray that you would just stir in our hearts. That we would allow these, these words to penetrate and your spirit to move. And that we would be convicted, God, just where we can stop moral decay in our own life, God. Where we can pursue holiness and righteousness. And then look out into our, our neighborhood and our community. Father, may we be salt. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. You know, typically every single week we offer a time where you guys can come and respond to, to what you've heard. I want to give you some time to chew on it. Um, I do want to ask um, Arthur and Charlotte, would you guys come up here?
If, if anybody needs prayer this morning, if you're going through a difficult time in your life and you just need somebody to pray with, Arthur and Charlotte would love to pray with you this morning. And I typically I say, man, if you, if you need to know Jesus, I would love to talk with you. But what I want to do this morning is this, okay? I want you to just really think about what we've talked about. And I want you to chew on it as we sing this song, and I want you to continue chewing on it after we leave here. Because, listen, man, the invitation to come to know Jesus is always available. Not just on Sunday morning for a few minutes during the song. Do you understand that? The invitation is always available. You can, you can, you can come to us anytime during the day or week. And I'll talk to you about Jesus. I'll talk to you about what he's done. So if you need prayer, come up here, Arthur and Charlotte, to pray. Other than that, man, let's just sit here and let's just chew on what we've, we've talked about. You guys okay with that? All right, let's do it.